Good morning again. I'm Ian Vasquez. I, I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and I'm really delighted that we're able to present this project uh, to you today, and I congratulate Mary and my colleague for putting this together, and, uh, and Stephanie Rugolo, who, who helped her on this, helped him on this. And we really do hope that this is useful, uh, not just uh, uh, for scholars, but for anybody who is interested in looking at uh, the ways in which virtually any indicator of human well-being has improved living standards in a relatively recent uh, time and, and uh, in many cases, very quickly. One of the indicators that impresses me and which is uh, well-documented is the fall in global income inequality over the past several decades, due, of course, to the opening up of China and India and then increasingly other developing countries. That uh, development, that phenomenon, is well known among the experts, but uh, this website shows something perhaps less uh, appreciated, which Marion mentioned, but it's, it's worth uh, noting again, and that is that if you look at virtually any indicator of human well-being, ranging from uh, life expectancy to access to safe drinking water and so on and so on, what you see is that the gap between the world's rich and the world's poor has been closing dramatically and much more so than is the case with regard to income. That's why a certain level of, of income today purchases so much more in terms of human well-being than was the case just 20 or 30 years ago. People are not just uh, living... Uh, do, doing better because they are richer, uh, they're doing better because they can actually get more bang uh, for the buck, uh, to put it one way. This website also allows uh, the user to explore the expansion of civil, political, and economic uh, freedom around the world in the past several decades. We believe that freedom is an important indicator of human well-being. And um, it's an indicator that certainly influences the other indicators. That the nature of that relationship is complex and surely uh, deserves a much, much more study. But an interesting phenomenon shows up in the data, and that is that even countries that have done little to improve the quality of their institutions and increase their levels of freedom see increases in well-being. And what is clearly happening uh, here is that the, uh, those countries uh, are benefiting uh, from the innovation the technology, the medicine, the capital, the ideas, and so forth, that are coming from the more free countries, thus confirming uh, Friedrich Hayek's insight some five decades ago that the benefits of freedom are not confined to the free. So I am very pleased to be able to introduce our next speaker, Robert Zellick, because he is one of the people who most understands these trends, who most has been paying attention to these trends throughout his very impressive uh, career, being on the front lines of promoting uh, these trends. Uh, Robert Zellick is currently a distinguished visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and he's a senior fellow at the Belfair Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Prior to that, he spent five years as the president of the World Bank, where he had a number of initiatives, including uh, being a supporter of open data. Uh, he has previously served as Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Uh, State Department. Uh, he served at the beginning of last decade for about four or five years as the U.S. Trade Representative, where he was instrumental uh, and indeed key to opening up uh, trade 
around the world, including in very important countries uh, like China. He has also served with Secretary James Baker at the Treasury Department, the State Department, and as Deputy Chief of Staff at the White House and Assistant uh, to the President uh, there. Please help me welcome Mr. Zelig. Well, thank you very much, Ian. And I want to thank uh, Marion and Cato for inviting me. Uh, I hope, like many of you, I was very impressed when I uh, learned about Marion's project. So I wanted to offer him and those of you that uh, share some of the interest in this a little bit of encouragement by coming to be with you today. In particular, there were two ideas that seemed to have motivated Marion's human research progress uh, project, and I'd like to draw some attention to both. First, there's the importance of encouraging open access to information. And second, a recognition of how the study of the data points to opportunities for inclusive economic growth, better living conditions, and individual fulfillment. So let me begin with a story about my experience when I was at the World Bank Group. On occasion, when I would speak to conferences like this one, professors or researchers would approach me after our remarks to say, you know, the World Bank has some extraordinary data, and thanks for making it available, but why does the bank keep charging for the use of the data? So when I'd get back to the office, I'd ask the bank's economic research staff, why do we charge for the data? And the research staff would talk about the value-added activities and the cost of creating the data sets and so on. So I was a little slow, so it took me perhaps three rounds of such discussions until I figured out what was really going on, which was that the bank's economic research staff was earning a few million bucks a year that it could use to its budget beyond the normal budget process. So we worked on an offset, and we made all those data sets available for free. So by the time that I left the World Bank in the summer of 2012, we had opened up to over 7,000 data sets, some reaching back decades, covering a vast range of countries and experience. Now, my first rationale was that the World Bank, as a global multilateral institution, should offer this data as a public good. But then I started to talk to people and think about some of the larger implications of what I came to refer to as democratizing development. And that means basically I wanted to encourage a move from centralized research and sort of elite problem solving to a networked uh, problem solving that went as deep in countries as you could go. And so here are five lessons that I learned about the power of what we came to call the open data, open knowledge, open solutions initiative. First, the open data approach enabled us to draw many more people into the process of solving development problems. Let me just give you a couple examples. We launched something called the Apps for Development competition by asking software developers around the world to come up with applications that met just two requirements. One, use these new data sets we'd opened up, and two, somehow relate them to the Millennium Development Goals. And it was interesting because it opened up the bank to a whole new set of communities, software developers in developed as well as developing countries that we would have never had contact with. And they came up with over 100 applications that, frankly, our staff would have never thought of if you'd put people in a room for a year. Um, 
new forms of mapping, new forms of games, new forces, new, new insights uh, about how to use the data. Here's another example. Uh, when we needed to assess the structural soundness of buildings in Haiti after the earthquake, somebody had the idea of trying to employ small planes to take photos from a variety of different angles and then post the photos on the web and then invite engineers around the world to help us assess the structural soundness. And certainly a surprise to me, but the point about opening up these systems is it's a continual run of surprises, is we were able to assess about 60 to 70% of the, the structural soundness, about 60 to 70% of, uh, of the buildings. And then we also started to share the information so that people could start to map it in different ways, to look at uh, some of the terrain characteristics, some of the water uh, sort of flows, and start to realize kind of some of the effects of this on long-term uh, stability or uh, health or uh, aspects that are related to agriculture. Second, uh, a democratized development process with open data uh, encourages local ownership and involvement in solutions. So when people ask me about the different uh, lessons that I learned about development, probably the most basic one is that outsiders, no matter how expert, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how flush with funds, cannot succeed with development if the local population doesn't feel the project uh, is theirs. By the time that I left the World Bank, you could call up a map of any country on our website, identify all the projects, and pull up the data on each one of the projects. And for me, the next stage would be and should be to try to enable people to interact and add their own insights uh, and, and uh, observations about each project using handheld devices to make this a true interactive system so that you could have people in a community say, well, this is what you think is happening with the project, but in reality, this is what we see. Third, if you combine transparency and public involvement, countries can strengthen social accountability and better governance. So one of my first incidents uh, that demonstrated this to me was that somebody had the idea that in a local uh, education project, to make sure that each of the schools that were supposed to get supplies or financing of teachers would post on the door of the school that this program was supposed to provide 100 textbooks and two teachers or whatever the number would be. And this allowed people in the community to say, well, we only had 50 textbooks show up and only one teacher comes to school. And so all of a sudden you could start to get people in the community involved in the project. Budget should be transparent. One wants to draw legislators, community groups, everyone, as many as you can, involved to monitor performance. And of course, transparency and public involvement are two of the strongest antidotes for corruption. Fourth, democratized development and open data create vast new opportunities for developing countries, or for that matter, developed ones, to learn from one another. In the past, it may have been hard for <clears throat> some of the developing countries to easily associate their situation with that of the United States or the European Union or Japan. <clears throat> but over the past 20 years, and you've seen some of this through the data you've, that Marion showed you, you've gained extraordinary progress and experience and successes in other developing countries. And I could give you a lot of examples, but let me just give you one that 
as high applicability today. Uh, Mexico was the first country to develop something called the conditional cash transfer program. It was called Opportunatus. We actually uh, used that as a basis to try to, uh, when President Lula came into Brazil and he wanted to expand a hunger program to develop a similar program for Brazil called Bolsa Familia. And in essence, what these projects are about is, is that they are they're a cash transfer program to the bottom part of the population. It may vary by country, 10, 15, 20% of the population, but condition on the fact that children have to go to school and people have to get preventive uh, healthcare checkups. Probably did more for women's health in Mexico than anything in the history of the country. And quite strikingly, in the case of Mexico, which covers about 20% of the population, this is done for a half of 1% of GDP. And you compare that with the cost of US entitlement programs. Um, <clears throat> now, in any program like this, one has to build and learn. So getting kids to school is not enough. You then start to have to collect the data about the performance in school and standards and accountability. Um, but it's a very important start. By the time that I left the bank, we had expanded these in one form or another to about 40 other countries. Uh, I remember going to see one of the sites in the Philippines that had started to uh, experiment with it. And if you think about what you read in the news about uh, the economic conditions and challenges in a country such as Egypt, you know, Egypt spends a huge amount of money on energy subsidies and bread subsidies. It blows a big hole in the budget. Uh, right now, the other Gulf countries are uh, filling some of that hole, but it's been a problem of Egypt's development uh, for decades. And uh, before Mubarak fell, actually, some of the economic reformers were trying to experiment with the CCT in one of the areas near the Red Sea. So it's an example of a real issue that you can learn not just from developed country experience, but other developing country experiences. Wherever I go today, uh, another topic that I think is going to be very rich for this is an interest in the connection uh, among schools to skills uh, to workforce transition. I just have to suspect, having seen what information technology has done to revolutionize um, business systems and business models all throughout the United States and much of the developed world, that it's going to have a similar effect. And you can see this experimenting with massive online courses and how you connect the uh, sort of on the on-site training with uh, with other types of methods. Frankly, I think if governments shift from a monopolist mindset, you will start to see private sector innovations that will help. And part of the challenge will be how quickly you can share the information so you can get it out to uh, countries around the world, but of course also help people customize it for local circumstances. Fifth, and very importantly, an open data approach is the best way to start to identify what's missing. For example, I've been a very strong advocate of the idea that gender equality is smart economics. Offering girls and women equal opportunity is, of course, the fair and right thing to do. But what I found is countries across all cultures, all parts of the world, recognize there's a huge economic loss if you don't engage 50% of your uh, public. And the issue varies by country, whether it's an issue of property rights, whether it's education, whether it's health, whether it's sort of discriminatory or simply just not thought through uh, aspects of kind of work or social environment. But many poor countries don't even collect gender data. So one of the basic lessons of this was the need to try to work with them to help collect the information. Or another example, 
uh, as countries will expand social services, we really need to look at performance measures uh, because the traditional focus on inputs can be very uh, misleading. Now, I understand that Marion's research and his effort to create more accessible databases on human progress has led him to challenge some of the fashionable pessimism. So let me conclude with a few big picture reflections on the power and prospects for inclusive economic growth, drawing from data and experience. Let me start with this one. I like history, so I often have a historical reference point. If you comb the literature of economic historians, you'll discover that the academic debate is focused on the difference in, say, living conditions in Athens at the time of Pericles and, say, London around uh, the year 1800. So <clears throat> the debate is that some scholars argue that living conditions between those two periods over some 2,200 years really didn't change much. The optimists will argue, well, actually, living conditions might have increased 80% over the course of 2,200 years. So that's the rough range that economic historians debate this. Well, the reason the Industrial Revolution deserves to be called a revolution is that it changed that history that went on for millennia. If you even just assume a growth rate of 1.5% a year, incomes, using the rule of 72, will double in a little less than 50 years. So even with modest growth, people could see a doubling of societal income with about a lifetime. It depends on, on uh, living expectations at the time you look. Now, consider modern China, which Ian mentioned. It's grown about 10% a year for 30 years. Now, with that growth rate, people could see a doubling of incomes and related improvements in living conditions within seven to eight years. So no wonder the society is in the midst of a huge transformation. So China's growth has been the single biggest anti-poverty program in history, lifting between four and 500 million people out of poverty. Now, of course, the Industrial Revolution and China's growth created huge challenges, too, of distribution, the environment, societal disruption. But continued growth in an environment of peace creates the means to address those problems while vastly improving living standards. Second, another big picture idea for you. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, the world's market, the world's, uh, market economy has increased from about a billion people to four to five billion people. Now, not surprisingly, an enlargement of that scale has been hugely disruptive. But just consider one effect. Uh, the McKinsey Global Institute estimates there's now about two billion people in developing economies that earn between three and $20,000 a year, and that represents $12 trillion of purchasing power. Now, this new consumer class offers amazing opportunities for them and for private enterprise. Businesses will have to adjust. For example, in, as people start to get above $2 a day, uh, they are up to maybe $1,000 a year, you start to see uh, a different uh, movement from basic grains uh, to meat or poultry consumption. And then it starts to become processed food consumption. And the processed food portions and packaging will all vary compared uh, to the nature uh, of the market. So the interests, of course, will change. If you get a little higher, you get about $10,000 a year, then you start to have people sort of eating out. So you have a different uh, type of demand. Now, the issue of concern today for many developing countries is how to keep increasing that growth. 
what some economists have called uh, the need to avoid the so-called middle income trap. And that's the tendency that you can see in the data of productivity, growth, and incomes to slow as economies move beyond basic development challenges. And again, just to give you a data reference point, when I was at the World Bank, uh, we evaluated the 101 economies that the bank had classified as middle income in 1960. And we looked at those economies in 2008. So this is almost 50 years later. And of those 101 economies, only 13 had made it to high income, and one of the 13 was Greece. So you figure out what number you want to use. <clears throat> now, while this is a challenge that's very much on the mind of most developing country leaders, uh, it also offers great opportunity. Uh, of course, the challenges of the middle-income countries differ. Some economies need more in the way of infrastructure investments. Most need to do more to improve their human capital. Almost all could benefit from more competition uh, in the services sector. I think the most successful will also recognize the opportunity to improve their performance through the private provision of what used to be considered public services. So you've already seen this happen in telecommunications, it's happening in energy, but I think you're gonna see it in water and education and health and other areas. Finally, uh, a closing word on the US. Historically, America's distinctive strength has been its ongoing ability to innovate. The United States seems to be the one advanced economy operating at the technological frontier where it's harder to maintain growth, then has been able to devise new ventures to advance economic growth, individual choice, and societal opportunity. And it's interesting, even in the midst of what looks like a very sluggish recovery from the Great Recession, you can see the huge changes in energy, IT and the use of big data, robotics, bioengineering, and others. And then these, of course, work their way through changes in business models because the, the competition in the system. This is the process of creative destruction and then reconstruction. But I think we have to keep in mind the United States cannot take its flexibility, its competitiveness, and its freedoms for granted. When I talk with various CEOs and other business leaders these days, I sense a cautiousness about significant expansions of investment or employment frankly, because there's a high degree of uncertainty about the future course and the weight of government policies and regulation. It's interesting, if you look at the states, you see some very significant variation. Some of the states led by innovative governors have really pushed structural reforms, whether it be for schools, jobs, more efficient services, including through private providers, the key issue of pensions uh, and infrastructure. So I think the federal government also needs a set of structural reforms. The bottom line here is one should never underestimate the power of the individual, uh, the creativity, the energy, the insight, and the drive to accomplish. So governments need to keep their eye on policies that will recognize the effect of incentives, but also be aware of disincentives. So I hope that this Cato project founded on the belief in the possibilities of progress, backed by a reasoned study of data and experience, can contribute to an open debate that will help people in the United States and around the world achieve what might be. Thank you. We now have time for uh, questions and, and uh, 
and answers. Uh, I'm asking also Marion to join us on at the podium in case there are questions specifically uh, re relating to the to the website itself. If you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation. Uh, question right there, please. Hi, Edward Hudgens from the uh, Atlas Society. Uh, by the way, congratulations. It looks like a really excellent uh, website, and I hope I can get some get connected through my uh, thing here to be able to look at it. Um, uh, Peter Diamandis recently wrote a book called Abundance, uh, if, if you two are familiar with, uh, <clears throat> with that uh, book, that uh, argues, among other things, that the bottom billion – that is, the poorest of the poor now with the communications information revolution are able to plug into uh, the world economy and not only be the beneficiaries of all of the advances we see, but also contribute to potentially having a, a, almost an exponential rise in production on the assumption that you still have the things that you need in those countries, such as individual liberty and so forth. I'm curious about your thinking on uh, uh, Peter's uh, uh, idea. By the way, he's at Singularity University. He did the X Prize and so forth. Uh, just a very quick acknowledgement that I read the book. I thought it was excellent, uh, highly recommended. We are uh, um, recommending it as related uh, reading or through other website. Um, obviously, we have seen a tremendous amount of uh, uh, innovation and uh, intellectual contributions made by people in developing countries. Um, but mostly in developed countries. You know, that old joke about Indians succeeding everywhere except in India. Um, that used to be certainly the case uh, during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's no longer the case. Um, India is booming. So I'm hoping that uh, developing countries will certainly uh, make greater use of their, uh, of their innate potential and uh, um, make a contribution to innovation economy. Um, let me answer it this way. Um, when you deal with, when you look at the bottom billion, um, you know, there, there's no silver bullet. I think the challenge is, and this is where study of the data is very important, is to try to gain from experience and learn what are the constraints on people trying to uh, fulfill their dreams and better their lives for their families. So what I saw in some of the most uh, poor societies uh, people that in many cases had suffered discrimination was just a little chance and a little opportunity. And you get sort of incredible, uh, not only uh, difference in their lives, but in their sense of self-confidence. Probably one of the most um, amazing organizations I worked with was something called SIWA, which is the Self-Employed Women's Association, started in India, but then it moved throughout sort of South Asia. And I remember talking with a group of women that uh, literally would go to some of the most intemperate uh, sort of climatic parts of India for six months a year um, to try to dig out salt. And they would actually live underground because of the heat was so uh, high. Um, and we worked with Siwa to start to create some opportunity for these women, but equally so for their families. And you could start to see the effect that these women would now then leave their children back in other areas because they could start to see some educational benefits. So it, the, the human spirit, if you give it a chance, is unconquerable. Um, with a, much of the bottom billion, uh, the problem is conflict. Uh, so one of the challenges more broadly is how do you 
combine the issues of security development uh, and governance. Um, and that was one of the areas I tried to launch some work at the bank because having been in those three different worlds, I saw how they often didn't communicate. And again, let me just give you an example that illustrates it. Um, if you talk to the security people in a place like Afghanistan, Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, uh, Sierra Leone, the first thing that they say is, look, uh, give people jobs uh, because otherwise we've got young men that might get paid to sort of put IEDs, explosive devices, or we get gangs, so on and so forth. You talk to the standard economists, they'll say, oh, no, we can't have make work jobs. You know, that's not a sustainable uh, economy. So what you start to find out is there's some approaches such as uh, food for work programs, which can start to give people a sense they're contributing, uh, they're building something in their, their country, uh, but you're not disrupting sort of market wages. Or you could start to, if you have payment systems, you do it so that it is set at a level that doesn't disrupt what would you want to build sort of the, the commercial experience. And there, I, so I think one of the issues for the bottom billion will be dealing with that combination. There's a huge amount in, in, uh, in the bottom billion that are people to living in rural areas. And here you've got huge potential in agriculture if you can start to connect all aspects of the value chain. So you've got uh, Ronald Bailey here sort of talking about biology. You know, the resistance to biotech is to me one of the worst things that fights, uh, you know, poverty in, in uh, I was in Tanzania recently and I was so disheartened to see that the Tanzanians wouldn't accept maize or corn that was uh, biotech because they're afraid that it would affect their ability to export uh, to the European Union. Um, but let's start with basic property rights and bring back my point about data. We did a project in Ethiopia where, and this shows a lot of this doesn't have to cost, uh, you know, sums of money, that we learned that if you put room for two names on land titles, that all of a sudden women would get to be co-owners with men of the property, and then the women could start to be able to get access to inputs and borrowing and credit. And many of you may know, women are the primary agriculture producers in sub-Saharan Africa. So, uh, I think the key here is there are institutional, there are governance, there are sort of difficulties in not having created property rights. But what's amazing is if you start to create the incentive framework, you can, you can have amazing things happen. One last comment on that, and that is that um, obviously policy and institutions matter. Um, during the 60s and the 70s, tremendous amount of investment was done in education in Africa by governments. And, but because their economies uh, were terribly closed and uh, didn't support job growth, many of their best people have simply left. Um, if we can keep them there in their native countries, then obviously they can contribute to domestic growth. But uh, that can only be done if uh, African governments specifically, but countries in, uh, developing countries in general, um, liberalize their labor markets, um, make uh, make it more competitive, um, limit parastatals, and so on. Just one last point on this, since you started with the book reference. Um, the Bottom Billion was, of course, uh, the title of a book that was popularized. It was written by Paul Collier. Uh, he's just produced a new book called Exodus, and it focuses on this issue of immigration. And one reason I like Paul Collier's work is that he's uh, unafraid of asking questions that uh, are, uh, that, that, uh, either anger or frustrate people. So he really looks at the effect of immigration on 
the receiving country, the departing country. That was Mark uh, point a little bit uh, about this as well, and kind of the societies as a whole. So uh, what I partly uh, think is good is that he, as in the case of the bottom billion, he's pushing research into deeper areas. And in some ways it fits very nicely with Marion's sort of overall approach here. You know, it, it starts to lead to collection of different information and some data to try to assess what's happened or what works. Question right here. My name is Henry Metzger. I'm a biomedical scientist at NIH. My question is related to whether perhaps the perspective of uh, this website shouldn't be broadened a little bit. And rather than talking about human welfare, uh, one shouldn't consider a broader perspective of global welfare. There are a number of indicators that suggest that the human welfare that, we, that I certainly agree has been well documented has been bought at a price. Uh, We've had decline in fisheries. We've had ocean acidification. We've had depletion of water resources. We've had human-induced uh, climate changes. Now, some of these things, I realize, are reversible. Uh, we've learned that about uh, water pollution. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, reforestation. Some of them, however, are not reversible, like species loss and climate change. And therefore, I wonder whether it might not be wiser to add some additional indicators to the 18 that you've listed, uh, which come at, at a considerable price, even though human welfare, as in the limited perspective, uh, has increased. Thank you very much. First, let me correct you. It's 18 categories of human well-being, but there are about 500 indicators of, of human well-being within it. Um, my, my immediate reaction to that would be to urge all of you to stay for a debate that will follow uh, a break after this panel um, between Mr. Samuels and Mr. Bailey, where I think that we are going to be looking at some of what you are calling the costs of human development, including environmental degradation. Uh, I am uh, encouraged by some of the trends that we are seeing in terms of uh, um, in terms of global uh, temperature not increasing as much as uh, people were fearful of. But in terms of addressing questions like species survival and so on, I would simply urge you to, to, to wait until the next panel because it's going to be uh, a much more informed discussion uh, than we can have right now in the Q&A. Let me just comment on this. Obviously, I leave to Marian and Cato sort of the expansion of their site and what their site does versus some other site. Um, but I, I want to continue to emphasize kind of this idea of gathering the data and lessons learned. So let me, let me take two of the topics that you mentioned. Uh, like you, I had a very strong issue, interest in fisheries. And in part, some of this goes back to a property rights issue. Um, you had overfishing uh, because of a lack of property rights. Um, and uh, when you start I forget the exact numbers, but the amount of the world's population that depended on protein of fisheries, um, then there were uh, the idea of uh, basically sort of the, the fish farms and what would be the effects of that in terms of some of the, the health or disease aspects. Uh, and then there were some experimentations with some of the Pacific islands, where if you take their spread of islands and a 200-mile economic zone, they could start to create a form of, of rights in this. And, uh, and what, what I found, and again, this is kind of the positive side, is whether it was uh, sort of environmental groups 
whether it was scientists, whether it was uh, restaurants that serve fish, whether it was the fisheries business, you know, if you showed the data to kind of show the danger of this, you could start to get people to come together and come up with some various solutions. And again, in the case that I saw, some of them were property rights based, some of them were basically to even uh, help some of these island states to be able to have enforcement uh, uh, that was sort of created the right dynamics so uh, some of them wouldn't have Coast Guard ships, but if they have a law enforcement officer on a Coast Guard ship. So there's lots of encouraging lessons to be learned about how this works. Now, let me take the climate change one. You know, when I was uh, at the World Bank, uh, one of the things that I decided based on my experience in trade and others, but you're never going to get to deal with the politics of this issue if you don't get developed and developing countries to sort of see some commonalities of interest. So I created a series of climate investment funds, which actually raised about $7 billion, which we leveraged to $50 billion through some other financing to do projects in uh, emerging market countries. And you start with, sure, one that you'd be well aware of is energy efficiency. I mean, you know, we have about 350 or maybe it's $500 billion of, of stupid energy subsidies around the world, which is bad for the carbon, is also bad sort of economics. So that's not, uh, that's one to take off. But let me give you an example of where data and, and experience can help. Uh, people learned, had the sense that avoided deforestation or could, is very important. So you have the concept, but how do you operationalize it? How do you make sure that if you are protecting a forest in one area that you're not cutting down the forest somewhere else. All of a sudden people discover there's indigenous populations in these forests, they wanna have a say. So what I was partly trying to do is, let's take the practical experience about how to make, how to get the incentives right, how to get the buy-in right, to try to deal with, in that case, avoided deforestation people were estimating could deal with 17% of the uh, greenhouse gases. There's opportunities in soil carbon. This is another one that's just right there. Soil carbon uh, can end up having uh, better agriculture, uh, absorb the carbon, retention of water. But the question is, how do you create the incentives for the right sort of practices for soil carbon? So uh, whether it's Cato's side or somebody else's, what I basically, I, I think that on the positive side of human progress is that, you know, with the right data and analysis and trying to get people to actually talk together in practical ways, you can you can address more of these problems than you would get, have a sense of from the nature of the acerbic debate. That's a good introduction for uh, uh, what we'll be discussing in the next uh, panel. Here at Cato, of course, we put a lot of importance on uh, institutions and, and their role. And one of the goals of this website is to be able to test uh, the impact of particular institutions, say property rights, and outcomes, but I'm sure we'll be discussing a little bit more about that in the next session. We have time on this panel for at least one or two more questions, beginning in the back there, and then here. Hi, uh, thank you, my name is John Graham. I'm affiliated with the Independent Institute and the National Center for Policy Analysis and the Fraser Institute up in Canada. And my question is, I'm a big fan of the Economic Freedom Index and I see that's one of the components in here. It looks like what you've done here is somewhat less judgmental than the Economic Freedom Index. Like you haven't said today, Singapore or Hong Kong is the number one country and the U.S. has fallen down to 17, like you do in Economic Freedom Index. Am I correct in understanding you kind of want to invite us to use this as a tool that we draw our own conclusions? I, mean, I know where you want us to go, 
but this is not an index, right? It's a tool that you want us to use. Am I framing that correctly? And the reason for my question is I'm starting to suffer from a surfeit of indices. You know, the Legatum Institute just put out their index of human prosperity. So would that be a correct way for, un- for us to understand? Yes, what you're it would doing be 100% the correct way of looking at it. Look, uh, two years ago, I read uh, Matt Ridley's uh, amazing book, uh, The Rational Optimist. And, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an analyst of economic development. I already knew that uh, in many ways, uh, life on earth was so much better and improving. Um, but I was astonished by the amount of evidence that this man put into this one book. Um, his his scope was just so large. Um, and I thought to myself, well, if this comes as a news to me, um, I'm sure that it will come as a news to most people. So why don't we create a website that promotes this concept uh, of, of hum- uh, improvements in human well-being? So the primary objective of the website is to simply show people the data. Uh, so primary, <laughs> primarily, it's, it's for them to understand, uh, is to see the evidence about, about the improving state of the world. Um, the secondary goal um, is for them to look at the correlations between uh, good things happening in the world and things like economic freedom, political freedom, uh, property rights, and what have you. But uh, yes, it is for them to choose if they so wish. Right. We, we agree with uh, Douglas North's view that, that that report, Economic Freedom of the World, is pr- probably the best single measure of the quality of institutions and policies in countries around the world. So we thought it was important enough to, to highlight. We'll take the, the last question over here in the front row for this session. Uh, Fred Smith, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, a two-part question, one dealing with the website and some of the aspects of it. Um, <laughs> the first is, you know, some just making the statistics a little bit more jump out. You mentioned per capita cost of chicken, real price of chicken, income growth. You know, Michael Cox has taken that information and put it in a way that I think is much more accessible. He puts it in how many minutes or hours you have to work to get a chicken leg today versus... So think, it's obviously, it's in the data. I, I can jump straight in and tell you that uh, we have a good working relationship with Michael Cox. We have access to his database and we are preparing to introduce that data into the website. We just ran out of time and, dare I say, money. <laughs> the other part is the... Um, there's a... Always a risk, I think, of the analytic community of, of dehumanizing human progress. I think that one of the things that would be obviously addable to this process is in every one of the little examples you give by country and so on, begin to collect videos, short little videos of what happens when the first light bulb comes to a remote village, the, the kind of human response to progress, which is so evocative and remove it from the pure statistics of that. The bigger course, I guess, goes to Zelik is we at CI talk about you don't have to teach the grass to grow, move the rocks off the lawn. And those rocks we know are cultural, institutional, and political. There's a risk, it seems to me, that might be warned of by this type of progress that historically mankind had little bumps of progress, but the Malthusian trap pulled us right back again shortly. There's a kind of a modern Luddite trap or political regulatory trap that might do the same thing. We progress... We get fat lazy, we decide to regulate ourselves to death again, and we strangle that growth. I wonder if Malthusian traps lasted, I don't know, 50, a generation or so. Is it possible that we're just in a blip where freedom got ahead of coercion 
and we're about to lose it again and slip back into a dark age. I'll do it the first one, I'll come back. Um, well, I mean, certainly Peter Chill has been talking about us regulating ourselves to death, um, and um, all I can say is that, like you, I don't like overregulation. <laughs> but I'll leave that to him, Bob. Um, well, I would connect your two observations. Um, because while uh, in the spirit of Marion and people in this room, uh, I like to try to look at the evidence and the data and make my own assessments. Um, your point about uh, explaining this in human terms is vital in a larger political debate. So one of the things that I've learned the hard way is, is that if you want to try to uh, kind of win this debate, uh, whether it be issues of freedom and liberty or markets, you have to explain it with stories. You'll see in my presentation, I tried to uh, put in some stories. It's just the way I naturally now try to think or explain things. And the more that you could, and obviously now with a new generation, you would use videos and YouTubes beyond stories, right? Uh, is that uh, the more you can, uh, for example, show what a difference some of these factors make for young girls or women or people having an opportunity, um, I think the better one uh, chance one has to overcome that sort of inevitably uh, inevitable regulatory overweight. But let me deal with that in a kind of a broader historical sense. Um, look, this is a constant battle. Uh, and, and so I'm not sure it's just of this period or other periods, but I think this period coming off the uh, sort of the financial crisis plus what is the uncertainties related to a larger structural shift. So one of the things the data show, and this is something I talk about in other contexts, is you know the, the rise of developing countries in the past five years, between two-thirds and three-quarters of global growth in the 90s, that would have been under 25%. I could go data point after data point. But this, of course, has disruptive effects for people. Now, in each one of these cases, I can show opportunities, new South-South logistics change, tourism, remittances, so on and so forth. But, you know, the average person out there can only deal with so much change. So I think part of the challenge is how do you help people adjust? And that's why in my remarks, I was trying to sort of include this notion that, look, it's important for society to have a sense of trying to kind of help people have public services, but how can we have these done often through the private sector? Got to get people thinking about sort of how to provide these services somewhat differently. So I do think that we're in a period now where there's a combination of government over-response and populism, that the populism will often react against the government response, but sometimes they can come together uh, in sort of distortive uh, fashions. But in particular, this is why I emphasize about science and innovation. You know, I have just been struck around the world. Again, what distinguishes the United States is that, um, you know, take the fracking. You know, I remember talking to the people, some of the people involved with this, you know, five, ten years ago, and they said, well, you know, we drill down, we then go horizontal, we crack rocks. You know, if it had been left to government, this would have never happened. But the U.S. is a country where you can have an idea and you have capital and you can make it happen. But look at the debate of these issues in Europe. So look at the questions of biotechnology. Look at the questions of fracking. And so coming back to your point about sort of Luddite attitudes, that is definitely part of uh, the society. And the irony is, is as you get to higher incomes, you know, sometimes people have enough satisfaction that it allows them to engage in that debate 
uh, and even though they want to think they're sympathetic towards other people, um, they, you have to keep bringing the facts home, like electricity in sub-Saharan Africa. Only about a third of the people have electricity. So I, you know, I would fight with people who wanted to do away with all fossil fuels, and then they didn't want hydro because they didn't like dams. And I said, spend some time living, you know, without electricity and see how it works, you know. So these are, in a way, you, you've really focused, I think, on the core question. I, and, um, yeah. and, and the issue here is, you get, at least in my view, you, you need to have good data, you need to have good analysis, good shared experience, but then you need to, you need to tell the story. One thing, I, I didn't do just to your first question. Every single data set in the website is accompanied by a video, and we have a YouTube channel. So, He's ahead of it. Tackled. <laughs> <laughs> well, this all underlines the point that we can't be deterministic about uh, where, where we're headed, and so all the more reason to provide this data and stimulate the debate. I'm afraid we've run out of time for this uh, panel. Before we take a 15-minute break, I want to ask you all to... Join me in thanking Mr. Zellick. Thank you.